This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Fred Gatchett talks about how Marxism and feminism corrupt the culture. What do Marxism and feminism have in common? Isn't feminism a good thing? What does the Catholic Church say? Well, let's find out. Here's Father Fred Gatchett. Howdy, howdy, folks. This is Father Fred Gatchett, the voice of divine mercy in the heartland of America here on Double-Edged Sword as we continue to cut to the heart of a deceptive culture. I hope and pray all is well with you as you tune in with us, um, either at home or in your car or at your place of work. And thank you for joining us and making KBDM part of your day. Today, I thought it might be helpful to re-examine Marxism. Now, I'm 50 years old, and I've only recently, maybe over the last five years or so, come to a clear understanding as to what Marxism is all about. Furthermore, as the show today progresses, we will look at the daughter of Marxism, which is feminism. And you're kind of thinking, what do those two got to do with each other? Well, just sit tight and we'll get to it here. But maybe you're saying to yourself, Marxism, isn't that just communism? Um, didn't the fall of the Soviet Union back in the 1990s pretty much show that the ideas of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels are dead? Hasn't the world learned that wherever communism is tried, it fails, makes millions of people miserable? Why even, you know, even communist China has caved into capitalism and has a booming economy now. Even they have learned that communism is a total failure. And up until a few years ago, I used to think this exactly. Maybe I'm just showing my ignorance when I say that my great epiphany has been to discover that Marxism is not just a theory of economics. It is instead a worldview and a view of man that is ultimately destructive to families and individuals and is completely incompatible with our Catholic faith. You might remember that one of the 20th century's greatest foes of communism was our beloved Pope John Paul the Great. And probably more than anyone, he, without firing a shot, helped bring down the Soviet Empire. As he was in the process of doing so, the KGB, you might remember the former Soviet secret police, contracted with the Muslim Turk Ali Ajka to assassinate the Pope, so much was their fear of him. And in our own times, we shall see that the adherents of the Marxist and communist ideology are as determined to destroy the Catholic faith as they have ever been. So if Marxism is more than just a failed theory of economics, then what is it? And why is it still around? Well, first of all, we have to see how Marx viewed human relationships. He didn't believe in the rights or the power of the individual. He saw all of human history as groups of people who necessarily had to be in conflict with one another. In other words, if one person or a group was to enjoy a certain benefit, Marx believed that another group necessarily had to suffer, necessarily had to pay for it. If one group benefits, it has to come at the expense of another group. This would be in stark contrast to the co cooperation that we see in a free market system. In a free market system, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker can all cooperate and trade among themselves so that the butcher has bread and light, the baker has meat and light, and the candlestick maker has bread and meat. The Marxists would say that in order for the butcher to enjoy the benefits of bread and, life, and light, the baker and the candlestick maker must necessarily suffer. Or if the butcher has a number of people working for him, then the only way for the butcher's business to thrive is at the high and unjust cost to his workers. 
Now, can the butcher exploit his workers and treat them unfairly, or can any employer for that matter? Well, of course they can. And historically, sadly, this has been the case. But the question to answer is, does the relationship between the owner and the worker or the relationship between one person with one thing to trade in the marketplace like meat by its very nature mean that the worker or the person bringing bread or candles to the marketplace have to be opposed to each other? I think most of us would agree that while unfairness and exploitation are often sadly the case, these relationships do not necessarily have to be defined by unfairness and exploitation. Marx believes that they do. So according to Marx's thinking, the struggle for power is at the center of all social relationships. Furthermore, the winner or the loser in this struggle for power is determined by whoever ends up as the owner of the most property. Therefore, the only way to resolve the conflict is to abolish private property and establish some kind of perfect equality with the working class wielding absolute power. In the Soviet Union, this meant that once the workers took power in the Bolshevik Revolution, the butcher shop, along with the tools of the trade, would be taken away from the owner and given to the workers, and the owner could either be satisfied to become one of the workers himself or be shipped off to Siberia to freeze to death in the gulag. So perhaps someone looks at all this and sees the failure of the butcher shop once the workers take over. After all, they do not have the business savvy and expertise of the owner. Certainly, they are expert meat cutters and are a tremendous asset to the butcher shop, but the owner has his business acumen. He knows what he's doing. The Marxist, however, insists on his belief that social relationships are based on conflict, and he gathers the meat cutters up after work in the, you know, in the evening hours and stirs up their jealousy and selfishness. After all, the butcher takes more money out of the shop than they do. Someone may respond by saying, well, of course he takes more money out of the shop. He used his life savings as well as, you know, he assumed a good amount of debt to buy the land, to put up the building, and to equip the shop with the tools that we need to make our product. If the business fails, he is out everything. We, the workers, are just out of job. We can go find a job someplace else. Since he has so much invested, shouldn't he get more of a share of the success of the business? But here we see the main strategy of the Marxist. Marxism can only succeed as long as it convinces people that they are victims. And we see a lot of that in our day and age, don't we? As long as the Marxists can convince someone that they are the group that is suffering so that another can unfairly benefit from their suffering, so this first strategy of, of Marxism is to deny objective truth. The Marxists will say that various groups have their own logic and structures of thought. Truth is whatever the individual feels truth is based upon his own experience. Within this strategy of Marxism, we can find one of its many fatal flaws, and that is, is that Marxism is self-contradictory. For example, someone could say, Look, my friend the Marxist, your theory doesn't work. Every time it's tried, it fails, and people are miserable, and many end up being murdered. Are you proud of this? Do you really think this is worth defending? To which the Marxist will reply, that is just what I would expect to hear from someone like you. Of course you oppose Marxism. You're one of the people who benefits from the injustice that you force upon other people. But wait, you say. I have just illustrated with history that your theories not only do not work, but they cause massive suffering and hardship. You can't just dismiss that. Well, says you, our Marxist friend replies. You, this is according to your reality. But everyone does not experience reality the way you do. And what right do you have to force your reality on everybody else? 
So there is no objective reality, you respond. Of course not, the Marxist replies. Everyone's truth is different for that person based on their experience. Your truth is based on the fact that you are well-off and successful. The truth of the working man is based on his bad experience working for the likes of you. Now, here's where it all falls apart, folks. For us to take the Marxist seriously, and for our Marxist to even take himself seriously, he has to accept as objectively true that there is no objective truth. He has to admit the reality that there is no reality except for the reality which everyone makes for himself. But if this is true, that there is no objective truth, then the fact that there is no objective truth must itself be true. If there is no reality except for that which the individual makes for himself, then that must be reality. This is why it becomes impossible to argue with these people. If you insist that there is such a thing as truth that exists outside of and apart from you and your Marxist friend, then the Marxist will accuse you of defending the exploiter. In other words, if you try to demonstrate that the butcher is indeed entitled to a larger, larger share of the profits of his butcher shop, since he fronted up the capital and is more gifted in, with business sense than his workers, you're only saying this because your reality allows you to exploit the working man, while the working man's reality says he has the right to take control of the government and use the absolute power of government to wipe out the privileges of the powerful. The Marxist will be the master of the ad hominem. If you question or even attack the Marxist position, the Marxist will rarely be able to defend his position. Instead, he will call you names. Well, of course you don't want the government to control health care. You have good health care through your work only because your employer is getting rich on the backs of those who do not have anyone to take care of them. This is the first step. And after seizing power, the Marxist then wins every argument by simply having his opponents arrested. It is the dependence on the ad hominem that makes Marxism such a frightening proposition. Years ago, in almost every high school, a class in logic or rhetoric was an integral part of the curriculum. Such classes are still available, but certainly not required, at most colleges and universities. And some, indeed, in some rare cases, you will find such classes offered at a high school. But why aren't these classes required? Why aren't our children, our young people taught to take a course in logic and to learn how to think logically? To make a, you know, to have a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion, and to dabble, you know, to kind of work with objective truth, and then try to discover what that objective truth is. Well, as Marxist thought has taken over the field of education, the last thing they want is people to be able to see through their thin defenses, which are basically made up of, of calling people names. So the first thing they do is dumb down the education system. We see this today in that many of our students can very clearly articulate how they feel about just about anything, but our standardized test scores keep going down, don't they? So hopefully by this point, we can see and understand a little more clearly what Marxism really is, that it is certainly more than just a failed school of economics. We might ask ourselves why, if there is such a failure, does it not just go the way of the dinosaur? The answer is that it has a stranglehold on the imagination of many people. There are those out there who refuse to accept that not everyone is guaranteed an equal outcome, and that an easy way around the fact that you have more than me, or that I failed and you succeeded, is to use the power of government to take from you and give it to me. But why is Marxism so opposed to the Catholic faith? The reason is found in the respective beliefs on private property, among other things. There's other stuff, too. 
In brief, the Catholic Church has always taught that we have a right to private property. Marxism abhors the idea. Marxism will insist that if I have some private property, the only way I could have possibly acquired it is by oppressing and victimizing somebody else. Hopefully, we have demonstrated that does not necessarily have to be the case. It can be, but it's not necessarily the case. The Marxists believe that it is necessarily the case. But the church teaches that we all need a certain amount of private property to work out our salvation. A family will need a home and food and clothing and education and money for expenses so that the parents can go about their work of preparing their children for the joys of heaven. If a family is destitute, ignorant, cold, and starving, they will not be likely to spend much time contemplating their salvation and giving praise and thanks to God. They are more likely to spend their time trying to figure out how to survive day by day. So again, just to kind of summarize that point, which is pretty important, the church is going to say that we need a certain amount of private property to work out our salvation. And so therefore, then we have the right to a certain amount of the world's goods to do just that. Now, again, the church will also be the first entity to say that because of greed and because of avarice, there are you know, many of us who you know, pile up much, much more of the world's goods than what we need to work out our salvation. And that's all true, but that's kind of a separate topic. The point is, is that the church teaches that we have an absolute right to some amount of private property. How much that is, again, that's up for another discussion. But Marxism abhors, I mean, they just hate the idea of private property. It all has to be owned by all of us so that we're all equal and that we're all the same. It is this fundamental disagreement between Marxism and Catholicism that has put the two at odds with one another for the past two centuries. This is the reason for the assassination attempt on the life of Pope John Paul II, as well as for the current tensions that we find between the Church and the governments of Western Europe and increasingly here in the United States. So, we're going to take a little break now, but when we get back, we're going to look at, at a subspecies of Marxism, which is feminism. Again, I don't think that we will find out that what we think that feminism is and what it actually is, we're going to find out those are two different things. So don't go away. Again, I'm Father Fred Gatchett, and you're listening to Double-Edged Sword on Divine Mercy Radio, KBDM 88.1 FM, broadcasting from Hayes. Stay tuned, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Double-edged sword cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Father Fred Gatchet. How Marxism and feminism corrupt the culture. Well, folks, we're back here on Double-Edged Sword, um, praying for the Holy Spirit's guidance as we attempt to cut to the heart of a deceptive culture. And we spent the first segment discussing Marxism. And as a brief kind of review, I think two items that we um, looked at bear repeating. The first is, is that Marxism is more than just a theory of economics, which, by the way, has failed miserably every time it's been tried. Winston Churchill once commented that under capitalism, there is a miserable distribution of equity, but under communism, the misery is equitably distributed. I think that's kind of clever. In other words, under capitalism, we have the rich and the poor. Under communism, everybody's poor. Now, 
This is Catholic radio, not capitalist radio, and I'm not here to canonize capitalism in the name of the Catholic Church. After the fall of the Soviet Union, which he helped bring about, Pope John Paul II made it clear that while free market capitalism is by far the best way to get the most goods and services to the most people at the lowest possible cost, it is far from perfect, as is evidenced by the gap that exists between the rich and the poor. What he has made clear, however, was that Soviet-style Marxism was certainly no viable alternative. And again, we know, I think all of us know just intuitively and from our own experience, that there are problems with our capitalist market, free market system, and those things have to be addressed. Um, but again, the way to address them is not to imitate Soviet-style Marxism, because we saw where that went. As we saw in the last segment, we're going to see, and we're going to see in a few moments, as we examine the daughter of Marxism, which is feminism, the disdain that both have for the family is one element that pits them against Christianity. Again, the second thing that we need to remember about the fundamental presupposition of Marxism is that social relationships are defined by conflict. According to Karl Marx, groups in a society must necessarily be in conflict with one another because it is impossible for one group to benefit without oppressing the other group. Or put it another way, if one group enjoys a certain benefit, it must always come at the expense of another. And the only way for there to be in for, for there to be justice is for some community organizer to come in and convince the oppressed group that they are being oppressed and then for them to seize control of the coercive power of the government and to use this power to violently overthrow their oppressors and to take control of the society themselves. And you know, another thing too that kind of came from the last segment that probably bears to be repeated as well is the Marxist denial of objective truth and instead saying that truth depends on the individual and the individual's experience. You know, this way of thinking is probably a lot more pervasive than what you think. And a lot of people who think this way don't consider themselves to be Marxists. But it only shows you the, the, the way that Marxism has infiltrated into our education system, primarily in the colleges and universities. Um, I can give you an example. Years ago, when, you know, the first seven years of my priesthood, I was stationed at the cathedral in Salina. And back in those days, for whatever reason, I don't know what it was, but I used to have a lot of associations with people like attorneys and judges and police officers and social workers and things like that. Um, I guess this must have been the crowd that I hung out with back in those days. But there were a couple of, of social workers who were just really, really fine people. They were good, devoted Catholic people. She was a good wife and mother, and he was a most excellent husband and father. They weren't married to each other, but they, they were you know from different families. But we were just sitting around talking one time. And um, the, the woman, whose, whose name was Beth, um, she was expressing kind of a, a concern over attention that her faith brought to her workplace. And that was the fact that um, she was talking about the fact that she and her husband both had good jobs. And they made, a, they made a very handsome income between the two of them. And she goes, you know, she goes, Father, there are people that I deal with where $50 would just mean the different, all the difference in the world to them. And it's, you know, $50 is something that my husband and I could afford to part with very easily easily. And, you know, Jesus says to help the poor. And so here I am, a Catholic woman working as a social worker for the state of Kansas. She goes, but um, the, the rules that we have as social workers, which I'm not going to question the wisdom of this rule. It's a very good rule. The rule is, is that the social workers are not allowed to give money to their clients, the people that they're working with. And for Beth, you know, this was a, this was causing some, some grief within her, you know, some kind of a, you know, a dissonance, I guess, as they would call it in the 
that she knew that these people needed help and she could help them if she, if she wanted to. But again, the, the ethics of her particular profession said that she was not allowed to do that. And her, her case in point was um, she had a couple of women she was working with. And these two women, between the two of them, had five children. One had three and one had two. And all of the five children were from five different fathers. And so needless to say, the wives of these women were basically shipwrecks. She was um, working with them and using the, the various resources of the state and the federal government and so on. She got them money to help pay for their rent and to help pay for their gas and electric bill and food stamp money and, you know, get get the, you know, the medical card for the kids. So they have some kind of basic medical care and things like that. And so she had put together this package of the government benefits, taxpayer benefits for these two women and these five illegitimate kids to have. And she suggested to them, since the women knew each other and they got along, that if they were to rent a house together, that their rent payment would go further, that they would do better with that rather than renting out two separate apartments. They could pay one rent bill rather than two. And she was kind of, um, at first, you know, she was expressing some dismay about how they had a hard time understanding that simple concept, that um, if they were to rent one house rather than two houses, that their expenses would be lower. But she finally convinced them of that. So they get moved in, and again, they weren't living high off the hog. I mean, they had a they had a simple little house with used furniture and you know all that kind of stuff in it. But they were taken care of. They were out of the cold. Um, their kids could eat their meals there at home, and they could go to school. And so basically, again, they were they were at least provided for in, in some sense. The Beth goes in for a for a, a checkup of the house sometime later, and there was brand new furniture in the living room. And she was just dismayed. And she's asking these women, she says, what, what are you what are you doing? And they went, oh, well, we figured out that with our with our rent assistant payment checks that we get from the government, that at the end of the month, we had an extra twenty dollars. And we went to the to the rental place, you know, where you can rent furniture and appliances and so on. And that we could we could rent this furniture for fifteen dollars a month. And Beth was just beside herself, just trying to, ex where do you begin to explain to these women that when you're on the taxpayer's dime, you don't really have the right to go out and, and treat yourself to luxuries like new furniture. And as she was trying to explain this to him, she said that she, I could just tell I wasn't getting anywhere. Well, then our friend Rod, again, who himself is a good man, he chimes in and says, but Beth, you don't understand. That's their reality. Their reality says that it's okay for them to do that. Your reality says that it's not. You just have to understand that you're dealing with different realities here. And I'm saying, Rod, then it's not reality. Reality has to be objective. It has to exist outside of us and be what it is, no matter what we think it is. You know, someone can look at a pumpkin and call it you know, a tire, but that does not make it a tire, no matter what your reality is. A pumpkin is a pumpkin. And so, um, again, you can see that this way of this Marxist way of thinking that there is no truth. There's only realities and people's experience of reality that defines their reality for them completely, you know, making it subjective rather than objective. That's Marxist thinking that's made its way into our colleges and universities and so on toward even good people, people who would not consider themselves Marxists. You know, if you were to, I know that if I was to ask my friend Rod, do you, do you consider yourself to be a Marxist? He would say, of course not. He goes, I fought in the Vietnam War against that stuff. He wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't believe it for a minute, but here he is unwittingly thinking like one. And again, I think that when people 
people hear such things as, well, you know, what, what might be true for you isn't necessarily true for me or, you know, her reality is different from his and things like that. People think that way. That's Marxist thinking, whether they know it or not. So anyway, with these things in mind, I think we can now proceed to our discussion on feminism. I recently covered this topic with my seniors at Thomas More Prep. And to begin the presentation, I asked them what feminism meant to them. And the answers I got were all over the map. And they accurately reflect, I think, the disarray of the feminist movement and feminist thought, assuming that such a thing as feminist thought can even exist to begin with. I don't think that in feminism a whole lot of thinking takes place. Once we, and again, once we get to what feminism is, you'll see why that is. For example, some students thought that feminism meant women seeking equal treatment with men in the workplace. So I thought, well, that's, that certainly makes sense. Others thought that it meant that women were seeking to become more powerful than men. Some thought that it was an outlet for lesbians to make their presence known. And since most of our young people get most of their information through the popular media outlets, I think this shows that there really is not a consensus in our culture as to what feminism is. I remember some years ago, I was listening to a, to a report on National Public Radio in the morning, and they were doing, kind of doing the same thing. They had a woman in Chicago who um, ran a warehouse of, of um, beauty supplies, you know, shampoos and conditioners and things like that. And she owned the warehouse and she stocked it with this stuff. And then her trucks would take it out and deliver the, the beauty supplies to the various beauty shops in the area. And that's how she made her money. She's a very successful businesswoman. And so um, they were asking her, they said, well, do you consider yourself to be a feminist and she asked in back she goes are you calling me a lesbian and again the, the NPR story and this has been years and years ago um, was basically saying that there that there doesn't seem to be much of a consensus as to what feminism is nowadays uh, evidently for this for the successful businesswoman um, feminism was like one of my students said that it was an outlet you know for lesbians to try to get out and get their cause you know put out on the into the public forum others thought that it was a way to assure equal work for equal pay for equal work um, some people now think that feminism means women want to be more powerful they want to take all the power for themselves well as I alluded to earlier, and for the sake of this discussion, we are going to examine feminism as a subspecies of Marxism. But before we get to that, we have to look at some of the basic presuppositions of feminism. Modern feminism, and again, I, when I say modern feminism, I mean feminism as it's you know probably since about the maybe the early 1900s. A modern feminism believes that men and women are absolutely equal in all respects. All right. That's important. Modern feminism believes that men and women are absolutely equal in all respects. The only reason, for example, that a woman might like to bake a cake and a man might to tinker on his car is because society has imposed these values on men and women, or when they were boys and girls, primarily through what the feminist calls the patriarchal power structure. Now, what do they mean by that? By the patriarchal power structure, what they mean is that men have consciously and deliberately built up social structures through violence that benefit men and keep women oppressed. Their agenda is further determined by what they see as a gross injustice in the consequences of sexual behavior, which are radically different from women as they are from men. It is the men who can have sex for pleasure and then just get up and leave. Women can have sex and enjoy the pleasure in sex, but they also then have to deal with the potential of a pregnancy. It is bitterly ironic that in their attempts to right this perceived injustice through abortion and contraceptives, women have brought tremendous pain, suffering, and other difficulties upon themselves 
and on societies. Now, how does this relate feminism to Marxism? Quite simply, they both see the world through the same lens of class conflict. That is to say, according to feminism, if a husband or children enjoy a certain benefit, it is at the cost and the suffering of the woman as the wife and the mother. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a preeminent women's suffragist from the mid-1800s, and again, this, is, this shows what these people were thinking way back then. Look at what it's turned into now. But back in the 1800s, Elizabeth Cady Staten stayed, stated that due to the fact that the relationships between the husband and the wife and between a mother and her children are inherently adversarial, that is to say, she is saying that in the family, the relationship between a husband and wife and the relationship between the mother and the children necessarily make them enemies to each other or adversaries with each other. And that being the case, the woman can only hate her spouse for benefiting at her expense and then in turn only hate herself for gratifying him. That is to say, if the husband comes home, you know, from working all day long and the wife cooks for him a meal and he sits down and enjoys the meal, the only way for him to enjoy that meal is by the fact that the woman was enslaved in the house cooking it for him. And so therefore, as he's eating the meal, the woman can only hate her husband because he is enjoying some benefit that came at her expense. And then furthermore, she can only hate herself because she did it for him. Furthermore, since her children would be born of this hate-filled relationship and situation, it would be or should be impossible for a mother to love her children. And the only reasonable thing for a mother to do with her children is to abandon them. This is classic feminist thought coming out of the, out of the late 1800s. This is like what we saw with Marxism. According to feminist or Marxist dogma, it is impossible for both the husband and the wife to benefit from their mutual relationship. If one benefits, the other pays. We might look at what scripture says about the relationship between husband and wife. It is indeed ironic that most of the teaching that we have about marriage comes to us from St. Paul, who was himself celibate. I always have to remind people about this who claim that to be Christian or even Catholic, but then doubt and ridicule the church's teaching on marriage when the church is run by celibate males. After all, what do a bunch of celibate males know about marriage and family since they're not married and don't have families? Well, what does St. Paul know about marriage and family? He wasn't married or have a family. Neither was Jesus. So anyway, that's kind of a separate discussion, but it's something worth thinking about. But let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm just going to read a few verses out of it. I'll leave it up to you to get your Bible out and read the whole thing. But it says, St. Paul tells the Corinthians, the husband should fulfill his duty towards his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. A wife does not have authority over her own body, but rather her husband. And similarly, a husband does not have authority over his own body, but rather his wife. Now that completely flies in the face of feminist and Marxist thinking. Feminists and Marxists say that the only way for the husband or the wife to benefit in the relationship is at the expense of the other, and so the two must necessarily be adversaries with each other. St. Paul is saying, no, the woman must give herself completely 
over to her husband, and the husband must give himself completely over to his wife. There is a complementarity there, all right? And so you, you can see right there where there is a you know, huge conflict in the, the, the teachings of marriage and family as found in feminism and Marxism as opposed to what's found in the New Testament. Also, just kind of a little aside here, but this is pretty important too. Going down to verse 29 in 1 Corinthians 7, St. Paul says, I tell you, brothers, the time is running out. From now on, let those having wise act as not having them. Those weeping is not weeping. Those rejoicing is not rejoicing. Those buying is not owning. And those using the world as not using it fully. For the world in its present form is passing away. A good, just a healthy reminder to remind us all that none of us are going to be here forever. But Paul says, I would like you to be free of anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how he might please the Lord. But a married man is anxious about the things of the world and how he might please his wife, and he is divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is anxious about the things of the Lord, so that she might be holy both in body and spirit. A married woman, on the other hand, is anxious about the things of the world and so how she might please her husband. And I'm skipping down to verse 38. So then, the one who marries his virgin does well, but the one who does not marry her will do better. Now, Again, this is just, you know, a couple of excerpts from 1 Corinthians 7. To get the fullness and richness of St. Paul's teaching, get your Bible out and read the whole chapter for yourself. But you can see the clash between the Christian gospel of St. Paul and the venom of Marxism and feminism. St. Paul sees the complementarity between husband and wife. They both own each other. Furthermore, as holy and noble as the thing of marriage is, those who would forego marriage for the sake of serving God, as did Jesus and St. Paul and many other generous souls in the history of our church, in the priesthood and the religious life, they pursue a better course. Again, here Marxism and feminism would see a conflict. One have, according to the Marxists of the feminist, one has to be bad and the other good. The New Testament says no, one, marriage is good, and the other, celibacy for the kingdom of God, is better. So again, th this is one of the things. Whenever you're dealing with Marxists and feminists, there always has to be conflict. The gospel teaches us that there can be harmony. Now, what about Ephesians 5? Here we have another key teaching of St. Paul regarding marriage, which feminists always take out of context. So let's take a look. Again, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, St. Paul says, Be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, he himself the Savior of the body. As the church is subordinate to Christ, so wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. Now, that part there causes all kinds of problems because people read that and they go, see, St. Paul was a chauvinist and it's all because of this chauvinistic way of thinking. This is why Christianity hates women and, you know, the, the Catholic Church doesn't want women to have contraceptives and abortions. It all goes back to the, to the scriptures, which shows that um, women are supposed to be subservient to men. Well, the thing of it is, we got to kind of take this and pick it apart. First of all, whenever it says 
that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, we have to understand what the word head means there. There's two Greek words for head. One word is kapita, from where we get our word capital. And so we talk about the capital of the state, which is the head of the state. Or we talk about per capita income, you know, income per head or per person. Um, that's one. But there's another Greek word called kephale, which means like the source or the like a, like a fountainhead, like the source of a river or a stream or a well or something like that. And that's what St. Paul is saying here. And, you know, to kind of paraphrase it, he's saying for the husband is the source of the wife, the way Christ is the source of the church. All right. Now, if you put it in that terms, if you understand it that way, it makes a little bit more sense because there St. Paul is just kind of making sort of a a biblical um, kind of, of a reference back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden saying that as Eve was sourced out of the side of, of the man, so the church is sourced out of the side of Jesus as his, you know, the blood and water runs down his side as he's hanging on the cross. So the problem a lot of times is if you're a feminist Marxist, you go into the world looking for conflict. That's your basic fundamental presupposition, that there has to be conflict. And so then anything you read is necessarily going to have to have conflict read into it, whether it exists or not. Because again, as we read in verse 24, as the church is subordinate to Christ, so wives should subordinate, be subordinate to their husbands and everything. But then in verse 25, this is a the part they never read. It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her in a bath of water and in the word that he might present to himself the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such a thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, when you look at that part, what's St. Paul saying? When he tells the men that, that they should um, love their wives as Christ loved the church and handed himself over to her. Now, let's look at this. To be fair to the Marxists and the feminists, if they are true to their rhetoric, then the passage I read looks like oppressive to women, especially if we focus on just a few parts. But it is the Marxists and the feminists who believe that in, in relationships, one must win and the other must lose. Christianity believes that while there can be oppression, it is not only possible, but desirable and imperative that both must benefit in a harmonious relationship. Again, if, if, we, if we look at what St. Paul calls the women to do, he calls for the women to be subordinate to their husbands. But then what does he call the men to do? He says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. How did Christ give himself for the church? He died on the cross. That's how he gave himself for the church. So what's St. Paul calling men to do for their wives? He's calling them to die for their wives. Wives, be subordinate to your husbands. Husbands, die for your wives. Who seems to have the tougher road to hoe here? Obviously, it's the men. Because what St. Paul is calling the men to do, you know, it may literally be die. It may be that the man has to give his life to save the life of his wife. And that would be a very heroic and noble thing. Most of the time, thanks be to God, that doesn't happen. Instead, what Paul is saying is that the man has to die to selfishness. That whatever it was he had while he was a single man, there might have been a lot of things he enjoyed doing, hanging out with his buddies or going to the racetrack or whatever the case might be. Now that he is a husband and then later a father, there are a whole bunch of things he is going to have to die to or let go of for the sake of his wife and for his family. I think all you married men out there know exactly what I'm talking about. So again, I don't think that, that if, if you give it a fair reading and read it in the, in the spirit in which it was originally written, there certainly is no conflict in what St. Paul is teaching us about the relationship between husbands and wives. When he, and he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 
husband, you do not own your, your body, your wife does. Wife, you do not own your body, your husband does. He's calling for a complementary to there, a complete and total submission of each to the other. You know, that the man must give himself completely to his wife and the wife must give herself completely to her husband. And again, as we saw in, in Ephesians 5, that women, you know, the wife must be subordinate to her husband and the husband must die for his wife. So again, I think there certainly is a complementarity and a, and, a, and a harmony there that the feminists don't really want to acknowledge. But if you're a feminist and trained to think like a Marxist, the biblical teachings on marriage can look unfair and stacked against women. But if we read it in the light in which they are written, the true meaning and the beauty and the balance between, between that original meaning becomes clear. Well, what about some of the other claims of feminism? For example, feminism loves to wrap itself up in words like tolerant or tolerance, inclusiveness, inclusivity, diversity, open-mindedness, etc. Feminism demands that women be allowed to pursue whatever avenue brings them to fulfillment and satisfaction in life. But are they true to their own rhetoric? I don't think we need to dig very deep to find out that feminism is at best inconsistent and if not downright hypocritical. For example, if a woman insists that her personal fulfillment consists on being on the birth control pill so that she can fornicate at will while pursuing her doctorate in women's studies so that she can later appear before a legislative committee in Washington, D.C. and demand the taxpayer pay for her contraceptives, then the feminist will be behind her a thousand percent. She's indeed living the feminist dream. But... What if a woman says that she will find her fulfillment in being a mother and running her household and caring for her children? As long as she is not married, then she will get some support from the feminist movement. But once she says, in addition to running her household and caring for her children, that she would also find fulfillment in being a wife to her husband, then all support from feminism will disappear. She will then find just how open-minded, inclusive, and tolerant the feminist movement is. This is part of what we saw with Marxism. If anyone questions or challenges Marxism, the Marxist will not try to defend the Marxist position with logical and cogent arguments. Instead, he will write off his challenger saying that no matter what the challenger said does not agree with the Marxist position as he is just one more bourgeois oppressor. Similarly, if a woman claims that she finds fulfillment and satisfaction as a wife and a mother caring for the home, she is a traitor to the feminist cause. And feminist rhetoric is not just, and dogmas are not just held by women. You know, years ago when I was um, first assigned at the campus center, it would have been the, the toward, right about this time of the year, the first, after the first full year I had been there, I was coming into the front door and there was one of the girls who was one of the regulars there was sitting on one of the benches out front and she was kind of crying a little bit. And I, I said, hey, you know, what's going on? Is everything okay? And she kind of looks up and she goes, father, am I throwing my life away? I said, what do you mean you're throwing your life away? Aren't you graduating later on in May? Well, yeah. Well, what the deal was, um, this young lady was going to school and she was majoring in whatever it is you major to become a track coach. And, um, in, the, in that program, they were towards the end of the year, and so the teacher was going around and asking the various members of the class, what, you know, what, what are your plans you know, after graduation? And so you know, one of the students says, well, I've, you know, I've got a job offer you know, to be the coach at, I don't know, Dodge City or something like that. And one of the ones said, well, I'm, I'm working on a job offer, or I'm working on getting a job at a health club in Kansas City. Oh, very good. And then he comes to this girl and says, what about you? And she says, well, you know, my, my fiance just scored a perfect score on the, um, on the state um, CP exam and I myself you know we're looking to get married in June and I plan on taking care of my husband and raising my children and the the teacher 
at Fort Hayes just blew up on her, went, you know, just had a meltdown, you know, chewing her out, berating her in front of the class, saying, then why are you here wasting my time and wasting the race resources of the people of the state of Kansas if you're going to throw your life away doing that? And so evidently, again, you know, you can tell how this guy had been, you know, thoroughly indoctrinated by the feminist movement. The, the feminists on the surface claim that women should be able to pursue whatever avenue brings them personal fulfillment. Okay, fine. What brought this young lady personal fulfillment? Becoming educated at the university and then wanting to be a wife and a mother and taking care of her home. Um, that was going to bring her personal fulfillment. Well, in feminist thinking, though, that's not acceptable. So in other words, you can, you can find your fulfillment as a woman, as a feminist, providing you do it the way the feminists say, not the way you say. So again, you know, so much for, for tolerance and inclusivity and open-mindedness. It is clear that the duplicity or hypocrisy of feminism is found in many places. Another friction point that feminism and Marxism both have with Catholicism centers around the family. In the simplest terms, feminism and Marxism are both opposed to the family. Going back to the basic presupposition that both one individual group can never benefit without imposing hardship on another, and two, men and women are the same in every respect, then the family must be sacrificed. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, kind of the, the founders of the communist movement, saw the family with its natural division of labor between mother and father, the husband and wife, as a major obstacle of the socialist ideal. They wanted men and women working shoulder to shoulder in the various state-owned industries so that the government could grow in power. This is exactly what's going on in our culture today. Consider a husband and wife that are both working. I'm just going to make up these numbers to keep the math easy so we can envision these figures in our heads. This is after all radio and not television. But assume the man's making 55000 a year and the wife is making 45000 a year for a combined income of 100000 a year. Now, you, the listener, have a good idea of your own income and expenses. By the time you, f you pay federal and state income tax, Social Security tax, Medicare tax, sales tax on everything you buy, gasoline tax, property taxes on your house and your vehicles, how much of your income is going to taxes? For most couples, it is between 45 and 50 percent. Now, if the woman is making 45000 of a $100,000 income, what does she find herself being? She's the indentured servant to the government. Everything she go, makes goes to pay the taxes. Since Marxism deplores the individual in favor of the state, and since feminism is a subspecies of Marxism, it isn't some, some kind of unintentioned side effect. Marxism needs women to be like men in as many aspects as possible so that they can work to support not their family, but the state. Furthermore, when women buy into the class struggle or class conflict theory of social relationships, they quickly abandon the sacrifices necessary to hold a family together in favor of seeing, their own, seeing to their own selfish interests. The next, the next logical step is to accept contraception and abortion so that their own interests can be pursued and realized without the quote-unquote burden of children. Now, again, they're taught this. They're told, you know, you're going to go out and actualize yourself working in the workplace, but what do they end up being? Indentured servants of the government using all their money to pay for taxes. So that's an introduction to the Marxist-Feminist connection. Again, based on my own experience of ignorance, I think these terms are not fully understood by many of us. Hopefully, by getting a little insight into what the Marxists and feminists are up to, we can identify their handiwork and work and pray to expose it for what it is. I believe that once most people understand what these two philosophies propose, they will not want to have anything to do with them. 
So this brings us to the close of another installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio. Again, I'm Father Fred Gatchett. I look forward to our next meeting with, with you. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Thank you for listening to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, internet, smartphone app, or smart speaker, we appreciate you tuning in to this week's Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. If you would like to comment on today's show or have an idea for a future show, please go to dvmercy.com and click on the Double-Edged Sword icon. And if you can help us keep great shows like Double-Edged Sword on the air, then go to dvmercy.com and click on donate or if you're interested in underwriting double-edged sword contact me donetta 785-621-4110 you're listening to divine mercy radio 101.7 kjdm salina and lindsburg 88.1 kbdm hayes 88.1 krtt great band and very soon kmdg 105.7 in hayes If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.